morning, everyone. Thank you for coming today. We had a, this weekend a very lovely Jizobon festival. We have two or three aspects of practice. One is sitting practice, and Zen, of course, means samadhi, chan. comes from the word chan, from the Chinese character that means sitting. Well, the emphasis in Zen, people often ask, well, what's the difference between Zen and other forms of Buddhism? The emphasis in Zen is silent meditation. Why? Because this is the way for each one of us to discover the truth. It's just the most direct way to quiet the mind and then to look into truth, to dip, be able to dip into prajnaparamita, this deep river of wisdom that's always flowing, that is the basis of our life, but is always covered up if we're thinking, busy thinking and doing. And it's one of the hardest things to, to give up, is doing and thinking. But if we want to see the truth, if we want to have access to wisdom in all situations, if we want to have access to loving-kindness, which is also an infinite pool of compassion and loving-kindness, we just have to do that. Then we also have ceremonies that we do. In some Buddhist traditions, ceremonies are emphasized. They do lots of ceremonies, fire ceremonies and so on. In the, in the esoteric tr traditions, a lot of chanting, visualization, mandalas, building mandalas, erasing mandalas, building mandalas, visualizing them and building them in the mind. And these serve many purposes, but one purpose also is to, is to help focus the mind. So you give the mind one thing to focus on, like an elaborate vis visualization, and then it takes years to learn to be able to concentrate on something in front of you and memorize every detail of it, and then when it's removed, to be able to bring it to life in your mind. And it has the same, one of the same purposes, which is to focus the mind, to tame the mind, to discipline the mind, to get it off of all of the crazy things it thinks about, and bring it to something that's wholesome. So in, in Zazen, in Zen practice, we use the breath or sound, very simple things. In other practices, they use more elaborate things, but the end, the end can be the same. Transcending the mind's anxiety, endless restlessness and anxiety. And then we have festivals. And the festivals in Japan aren't quite adaptable to America, whole, whole cloth, so we were modifying them. And one of the festivals we did, we, we thought we would try, and this is our second year as the Jizobon, and I think it went, it went very well. Something that's available for people of all ages, for families. So if you couldn't come this year, I highly encourage you to come next year. You can talk to the people who were here yesterday. We had a whole range of activities culminating in a very nice Kashiti Garba ceremony. I don't want to give away all the things that happened because it's nice to come and have some of them be a surprise. <clears throat> so that has to be an aspect because of our practice. We're finding in America because Silent sitting practice is, is not so accessible for children, even teenagers. Teenagers can begin to be pulled into it and to see its benefits. 
But children, of course, are not so interested in sitting silently for long. At Dharma camp, they think they sit for 10 minutes. They try to lengthen it a little bit. That's pretty good if they can sit for 10 minutes. We tried, and we try in Dharma school when we have very young children, four or five years old, see if they can even sit still for five breaths or 10 breaths. It's a beginning. It's an alternative to the frenetic world of television and stimulation and activity, endless activity. Years ago when we did the S training, they said, boredom is a very high state. Most people think of what boredom is horrible. And many kids these days, in particular, whine, I am bored. Wasn't it wasn't a big deal when I was growing up because we weren't being entertained all the time. And we read. If you read and if you liked being in the woods, you liked being outside, you were never bored. There were just so many things to do. And we had a lot of neighborhood games that we played. We played cowboys and Indians, for example. We'd divide up into the cowboys and Indians and then the Indians would hide and the cowboys would ride into town and somebody would rob a bank. And it was a very elaborate plan that we had. It could go all day long, cowboys and Indians. <coughs> Take people's captive, tie them to trees, you know, rescue them. And so we were using our imagination all day long. We were, ne- we were never bored. It just was inconceivable. Occasionally we had to be pushed out the door in our snowsuits because it was freezing cold outdoors and we wanted to stay indoors. And occasionally we had to be forcibly ejected out the door into the cold, but then we'd get very active to playing snow forts and snowballs and igloos, and then we wouldn't want to come back in. So I think that children these days, because they're overstimulated through electronic media, really need the, the zazen aspect as soon as we can introduce it, of just being and sitting quietly. I remember going and sitting by a neighborhood pond and just watching dragonflies and, or sitting under a tree just listening for hours. It wasn't boring at all. It was, it was fascinating. Very quiet, not much happening, but very restful. I just wonder how many kids these days get to do that and find that uh, entertaining or worthwhile to do. The ceremony that we did yesterday, we had an, an element of hell. You saw the puppet show and bright eyes going to hell. This comes from the Earth Star Bodhisattva Sutra. It's one of the classic tales in the Earth Star Bodhisattva Sutra of where Jizo came from, where Earth Star Bodhisattva came from. Jizo, those two characters, G and Zo, are actually, actually mean Earth Store, Earth Treasure, Earth Womb. So Jizo is the guardian not only of women and children and travelers and firemen, but also of everything that comes from the earth. And Jizo is said to be able to navigate through the six realms of existence, one of them being the hell realms, and to help people who are stuck in that realm move to a higher realm. If they can't move through their own power, then Jizo can offer some help. So in the classic story from the Earth Star Bodhisattva Sutra, Bright Eyes, who is a young Chinese woman, is very worried because her mother has died and her mother killed lots of life because her mother loved to eat eggs, turtle eggs, and fish roe. So usually we eat an egg, a chicken egg, one egg, 
And then, and in China, they would consider that we have to think of the life that won't arise from that egg, because most eggs in those days, of course, were fertilized. <clears throat> so you have to be aware, oh, I'm eating an egg, but I'm also preventing a further life, killing life. And from that point of view, then fish row, caviar, hundreds of potential lives, turtle eggs, if you eat them by the dozen, which apparently bright-eyes mothers, bright-eyes mother did, then you're killing hundreds of potential creatures. And then one of the issues with that is all of those creatures could go on to migrate into higher lives and eventually become enlightened. So you, that would be the highest outcome that you would wish for them. So the, the fundamental aspect is living a life of non-harming. So to consider the precept of non-killing and to live a life as much as possible as a life of non-harming. We, of course, have to kill in order to live. Our life is not possible without killing plants, at least. But just to be considered all the time, if we're eating fish, are we, are we grateful? Do we, are we aware of this life that's going into us, and are we thankful and grateful for the life of the fish, or the clam, or the cow? Mm. Makes our life possible. So always to have that awareness while we're eating that stream of life that's flowing towards us and becoming our life. Abrades was, was quite concerned because her mother had consumed so many life forms in the form of eggs, and she was worried that her mother would be born in, reborn in a difficult realm, a hell realm. And she prayed to the Buddha for illumination about where her mother might be, and received a, a vision, a clear vision, that her mother was in hell in a very difficult realm. So she vowed to try to help her mother out of that realm. Practiced very hard. They had a cute version of that last night where she was concentrating, going, mm. and the puppet was going, mm, concentrating very hard. <laughs> Hopefully our, our zazen is not quite like that. <laughs> but she practiced very, very hard for her mother's sake, and then her mother was released from hell. And then actually the next part of the study is Bright Eyes was so concerned about the other people that she had seen in hell with her mother that she felt she couldn't just leave it at rescuing her mother, but she had to go on and, and keep on practicing until all beings were removed from hell, were freed from the hell realms. And so she became Earth-Store Bodhisattva. She took on the vow of Earth-Store Bodhisattva as long as space endures. The, the chant that we said, we said last night, that we chanted last night. As long as living beings remain, so then shall I too abide to relieve the misery of the world. All of us have some aspect of that vow. We're always moved by seeing the misery of the world and want to do something about it. But we're often unclear about what to do about it. And that's again where we circle back to practice. Practice has, gives us the clarity to see what is our role, our particular small bit of relieving human suffering. It all fits together like a big puzzle. But how can we help humankind? It could be by being a librarian and being kind to people who come in who don't quite fit in the library, but are there to learn, to read a book, or even to get out of, you know, a homeless person who just needs to sit indoors out of the rain for a while and read and be comforted. Well, so many ways that we can, that we can help the hum human misery, human suffering. We always think in America of grand schemes. Well, I want to be Mother Teresa. 
and I won't, I just won't do anything until I could be Mother Teresa or I could be a politician who could pass some great law that would relieve human suffering. You know, we all know, I think most, most people are sophisticated enough to know that politics are seldom the way to relieve suffering. Often the laws that we pass have a lot of unintended consequences and, <clears throat> and cause quite a bit of suffering. We find that out about five years after we pass the law, much to our dismay. We often have this somewhat deluded notion, I have to wait until there's some grand way until I, I can, that I can help in the realm of human suffering, the hellish realms or the hungry ghost realms. But that's really a mistaken view. Each of us has many, many, many small opportunities during the day to help in the realm of human suffering and then put together it becomes big, it becomes the bodhisattva vow, the bodhisattva's power. When each one of us vows to work in the way we can, then we all work together. Not necessarily together in the same office, or even the same sangha, but aware our mind is big enough to realize that we're all doing our piece of the work and it forms a huge robe of liberation. Each of us is a piece of that robe of liberation liberating ourselves and simultaneously liberating others. But what is hell? This is, a lot of people are, come to Buddhism reactive to, let's say, Christianity and the idea of the hell realms. That if you do this, if you break these laws, then you're going to go to hell. That, was used, that has been used in the past very effectively and was used in China at the time the sutra was written. It was used very effectively, fear of terrible consequences if you broke the precepts. And in China, the consequences were quite horrible. The hells were, were they, they had uh, illustrated versions, which we actually saw when we went overseas in some panels in some temples. So for example, if you committed adultery, used sexuality in, inappropriately, and caused a lot of difficulties, then you would the, the hell you would fall into was the burning pillar. So this pillar was made of metal and, the, and it was burning hot. But you saw it as the form of your beloved. So you would rush to this pillar and embrace it. And then suddenly it would turn, not, the image of your beloved would disappear and you would be embracing a red hot iron pillar, which would sear your flesh. And then you would either die or be revived by a gentle breeze, the bodhisattva gentle breeze would come and cool you off and then it would, the whole thing would start over again. Again you would see your beloved in this pillar and, would race, and you would, the memory would be wiped out of what happened last time. So you would race forward to embrace the pillar again, this burning pillar. Again be seared, be in agony, fall down, either die or be revived. And it would happen again and again and again for eons. But what, what does that correspond to in our in our experience, well, it could be domestic violence, for example, where people get together and then a situation escalates into domestic violence, either on the part of the man or woman. We usually say on the part of the man, so we think of, but actually there are a lot of women domestic violence perpetrators. So there's domestic violence, and then there's a, an odd sort of intimacy in the, in the fury of the argument and even in the physical uh, pain of the domestic violence, then there's a collapse, and then there's a, 
reconciliation, a honeymoon period, intimacy, reestablished, usual sexual intimacy, feeling of closeness because in anger and in violence there's an odd kind of intimacy that comes out of all the adrenaline and energy there, the presence being present in those violent situations. And then again, difficulties mount, mount and mount, and then, then again, anger, seared by anger, seared by violence. And then fall away, make up, loving for a while, and then it repeats. So these, these seem like old and ancient and antique ideas, oh, this burning pillar, but it's easy to see the, the, the contemporary situations that match the hell of the burning pillar. We have to look at what is hell. What is hell? What is hellish? What would be the hell realms? What can you think of that would be hellish? You would call in your, in your experience, it doesn't have to be your own life experience, but what you see on TV and hear in the news, what would be a hell realm, contemporary hell realm? Anybody? Your child missing. Your child missing. So let's say your child is, is gone and you search around the grocery store and you can't find them and then you have to call the police and all points bulletin and of course we know that children can be abducted and, and killed, mm -hmm. raped and killed. So that would be a hellish, hellish time during that time. No? Other ideas? Living in a war zone. I think we would all define being in the midst of a war as a hell realm. Other ideas of hell? Contemporary ideas of hell? Addiction. Addiction. <coughs> so that same burning pillar, something that we think is going to cool us off and, or refresh us or make us happy, we run towards it, whether it's alcohol or drugs or sex or whatever it is. Gambling, we run towards it, we engage in it, and then we realize all the suffering that's inside of it and fall away for a while, remorse, back. Usually addiction is used for the hungry ghost realm, the insatiable desire realm. The hell realms is, are realms of physical and mental anguish. So the mental anguish of having your child disappear could even be an older child. Let's say you're, you have an older child and suddenly they disappear. You have no idea because you've been out of contact for a while. You have no idea what's happened to them, how to find them. That would be quite emotionally wrenching. And then a war zone, of course, there's physical threat and physical injury. I, I would think of Iraq as a contemporary hell realm for many people. Roadside bombs going off and not knowing if children or women might blow you up. Who's an enemy? So living in a constant, in constant dread and fear. Any other contemporary examples you can Aging think of? Parents. Aging parents. <laughs> Which is a hell realm because... Because you have to take great care of them and uh, take care of uh, any situations that are on them. Mm. If they're in a care home, and, um, sometimes they get into Alzheimer's or... Mm -hmm. So seeing your, your parents wither away physically and, and mentally, or a child, someone you love. And to, um, seeing them heading towards death and all the changes that happen. 
So if they're suffering, then that makes you suffer. So they could be suffering in, in the hell realm, and then that also, you get, you get drawn into it. Yeah. Robin, you had another? Uh, prison? Any sort of prison? Mm-hmm. Some aspects of prison can be very hellish, especially if you're, if you're victimized in prison. So you're already in a bad situation and then you get victimized in, in prison. It can be very distressing, both physically and mentally. So it's interesting to look at how the Buddha defined hell. Most of the hells that we're talking about involve fear of death, right? Fear of death. Fear of sickness, fear of old age, fear of death. If our child's abducted, the, the worst thing that could happen is they, they could die. Or if our child disappears, the worst thing that could happen is they could die. In a hell, in a war zone, the worst thing that could happen is lots of people could die, including you. Lots of people you love could die. Age, aging parent, they're going to die. It's obvious. They're sliding right towards death. Or as we individually get older and we, our body begins to break down and we can't do the things we used to do, then that becomes a great difficulty sliding down into sickness, old age, and death. The older we get, the more we respect what the Buddha said about old age being suffering, the cause of suffering. Mm -hmm. Or in prison. In prison, there's always a threat of death, whether from the guards or from the other inmates, or that you'll be stuck there till you die. I'm sure some teenagers would say that boredom, you know, is maybe worse than death, <laughs> being bored. Or maybe after you have a belief that after you die, there will be nothing. That would be very boring. So it might be part of the fear of death. No? Did you want to say something else? Well, I, just, I was thinking of the hell realm as being indecision, but then that's also the death of another choice. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very interesting. We're studying our mindfulness task the last two weeks, or last week and now this second week which will turn into a third week because of session, is to look at anxiety, fear and anxiety. Anxiety is the pervasive form of, of fear in our society. Usually we're not terrified, which is what we think of when we hear fear. We think, ah, a car just almost smashed into me. Actually, when the car is smashing into you, you're not afraid because you're just, it's just smashing into you. When the tragedy is happening, it's just happening to you. Before that, you're afraid, and after that, you're afraid. But if you've been through bad things happening, it, they're just happening at the time. There's no space for being afraid. But fear, anxiety is the most pervasive form of fear in our experience in America, I think. And we're looking at when does it arise in the morning? How do we know what's there? Is it there before we get up? Was it our companion during the night? Does it not arise until we stand up or until we have the first cup of coffee? Coffee can, coffee can bring a little edge that we could feel as anxiety. Or until we set out the door to work, or first look at our, the first email, or what, you know, when does it come in? And then what are its components? What, make it what, what makes it arise? We take anxiety apart. And then what makes it soften? What makes it disappear? What relieves it? So what, what, what brings it about and makes it worse? And then what relieves it or makes it disappear? So that's what we're looking at. So we're looking at fear, but a more common form of, of fear.
Now, the, what the Buddha said about hell is that hell is physical or mental suffering without hope of relief. A very simple definition. And then it's become elaborated in various cultures where you bring in cultural elements. Like in China, they bring in the ten kings who sit in the courts and you have to go before each one of them. And the court clerks bring in you the book of your life and they read it to the judge. And then there's a mirror that reflects all your evil deeds. And then they drag you off for your punishment and so on. That's all. Those are cultural elements that have been added to the basic teaching of the Buddha, which was that hell is physical and mental suffering without hope of relief. So if our anxiety or fear about death has no relief, then that's going to be a form of hell. Whatever form it takes, my child's abducted, my child's missing, I'm in a war zone, I'm getting old, I'm dying, my parents are getting old, my child is dying. So if we're afraid of death, then that, that automatically has some hellish elements to it. Physical suffering, emotional suffering. So somehow, Jizo has the ability to move us out of that hell realm. The hellish realm of physical or mental suffering with no hope of relief. So how does that happen? Well, we have many tools in Buddhism, in Buddhist practice, to help work with that, those fears, with, with, the, with that suffering, with physical suffering, and with emotional suffering, mental suffering. Many, many tools. So every time you come to a workshop, or every time you come to a retreat, we introduce you to those tools. And then it's up to you to use the tools, to recognize, oh, now I'm anxious, now I'm afraid. But please, when you're afraid, when you're anxious, please always ask yourself the question, if this continues, what would be the worst outcome? Because you need to know what the mind is really afraid of. So the mind might say, well, I'm afraid I won't get my paper in on time. Well, then you, then you have to say to the mind, well, then what? If you didn't get your paper in on time, what would happen? And then what? And then what? Because you need to get to the basement level of what the mind's really afraid of. That's a very interesting exercise. So once you, once you find the bottom line fear, really, really down at the, at, the, at the very foundation of the mind's, where the mind generates anxiety, what is the foundation? And often it's death. You will be amazed how often it's death. Well, if I don't get my paper in, then I'll flunk this course. If I flunk this course, then I might flunk other courses too, because probably my ambition is just disappearing, and then I'll have to drop out of college, and then I won't have a degree, and then I won't be able to get a job, and if I can't get a job, you, know, you just keep probing the mind or have somebody else do it for you. Then I'll be out on the streets, and then I won't have any health insurance, and then when I get sick, even from just a cut on my foot or an abscess tooth, then can't go to the dentist, can't get, go to the doctor, and then I could die of blood poisoning alone under a bridge. That's usually where the mind takes you to, dying alone under a bridge. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
So if we're not afraid of that, you know, if you can find, if you can find what the mind is really scared of and you, can, and you can practice until you're not afraid of that, then you're out of hell. There's no more hell realm. And I truly believe that if we were not afraid of death, if we could practice until we're not afraid of death, any manner of death, then we'd be free of hell. Because everything else is generated out of them. So this is the beauty of the Jiza Bodhisattva stories about the hell realms. Now we can't always lift ourselves out of the hell realms. So we, do, we, we rely on someone else in the stories, Jiza Bodhisattva. But Jiza is anybody who manifests the qualities of benevolence, unflagging optimism. And in the Jizo story, it's if, if a person has even the tiniest bit of good in them, that, 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 then that can be magnified and worked with through the practice to lift them out of the hell realms. Small as a dust mote, small as a dewdrop. So that includes everybody. Everybody's got that much good in them. A dewdrop worth of good, a feather, a piece of down worth of good. Everybody, almost everybody's got something in them that's kind to animals or plants or someone, someone or something. So that means everybody can be saved. But not everybody has the tools. So great benevolence, unflagging optimism means no lost causes. Great determination means never give up. The Korean Zen master Sun Sanim calls it don't give up mind. He has all these different minds and one of them is don't give up mind or no problem mind or there's lots of minds, very cute little phrases. Don't know mind. Right here mind. So a great determination is don't give up mind, never turn back mind, always moving forward. That our vows, once we discover and shape our vows and we keep saying them, our vows will keep moving energy forward even after we die. But one of our fears of death is whatever we've accomplished in our life will just disappear. Very common when you think of it. My, My sisters came a few months ago to help clean up some things that were left from my mother's death three years ago. My mother was an artist all her life and an art teacher most of her life. And, and kept on taking courses too for her master's degree. So she produced life, or she produced art all of her life. And her students also produced art. And we had pretty much her entire collection, samples at least of her entire collection. And unfortunately, unlike Unfortunately, like most small women, she was five foot two and weighed under 100 pounds. She made huge works of art. <laughs> we had giant canvases, lots of them, and sketches and things from art school. But we, we were able to go through her whole history of, from art school and some of the exercises she'd done, paint, like, paint this picture like Cezanne, paint this picture like... Picasso paint this picture like in the style of where you're learning different ways to paint. From those exercises in her portfolio, some of her things that she'd made, jewelry and so on that she made, uh, all the way up through some fantastic paintings she made at Chicago Art Institute of nudes. She had nudes of each of, of each major race. So she had African American. I had never seen them, seen them before. 
They were just rolled up canvases. African-American nude, Asian nude, Caucasian, and Hispanic. Beautiful, gorgeous, half life size. And then lots and lots of other things, prints that she'd made, and there were just all these different stages of, of, of her life, and a whole, a whole thing that I had never seen about uh, nuclear war. It was her peace series. So she had become concerned when we were children that it, uh, it was during the arms race. And we, we all had to do that exercise, duck and cover, where you went under your desk. You know, as, as if this is going to help you when there's a <laughs> nuclear explosion. But we all did it. Or we did it in the hall, lined up in the hall, and you always hoped there was a cute boy nearby. You know, so you could... Because you had to... There were just not one line, but two lines. You had to lie on the back of somebody else. You always hoped that the boy or girl you wanted to lie on was right there in front of you. I mean, we, we didn't really understand the seriousness of it, but my mother felt very passionately that this was not, a good, not good emotionally for children to train them. Uh, in this way. So she did a very, some very poignant pictures of, of a child under a desk, huddled under a desk, or a child looking out the, the window with the window blinds drawn, anxious about, about whether uh, a bomb could fall. Can, you can feel the anxiety in the painting. I had never seen those. So this was a very um, touching time to review my mother's life in, in all of her work, including statues that she'd made, because she, when she went on for her master's, she continued to produce work. And then a lot of her students' work, too. We used to help her hang art exhibits for her students, and she had kept some of her best student work, too. So we spent a day and a half down at my one sister's house, and then we came up here, because I've got a lot of this stuff, too. We spent about three days going through her things and trying to decide what to keep. Very, very uh, poignant. What do you keep from your, from your parent who's died? And if you throw it all away, if you give it all away, then are you giving away your mother, memory of your mother? And yet, I know none of my children are going to want a piece, maybe one small piece of hers. But if you think going forward a few generations, everything that she's produced will be gone. Everything will be gone in 100 years. 200 years, definitely everything that she's produced will be gone. So the same is true of all of us. A whole lifetime of creativity, of building things, and making things, writing things. It'll all be gone in 200 years. Now that can either make us suffer, or we can say, that's the truth. That is the truth. That's the way life is. That's impermanence, and that's the truth. And then we make that our foundation, instead of trying to run away from that. So we make death our foundation. Sickness, old, old age, and death, that truth our foundation and we make impermanence our foundation. And that everything, every conditioned thing, will disappear, our foundation. Now, you can't go out on street corners and encourage people to come to a Buddhist temple because of the beauty of impermanence and death. That's not, not a very popular foundation for religion. <laughs> And yet it actually is, because it's the truth. Just like when you trace your mind's fear, the mind is always going to be squirrely until you get down to the bottom of what are you actually afraid will happen. And then the mind settles once it's told the truth about what the fear is. There's a great settling when we have a religion, a practice, that's based on the truth of death, sickness, old age, death, impermanence. 
We cannot run away from them or we will run forever and our descendants will run forever. So how do we work with that fact that, uh, that everything that we've produced, that we've accomplished, everything that we've built will disappear? All the material, the conditioned things. That's what the Buddha said. All conditioned things, all things built up out of conditioning, out of cause and effect will disappear. Well, this is, Buddhism we, we, sounds pretty hopeless, right? Not much hope there. But Buddhism actually is extremely hopeful because of the path, the practice that leads to stepping out of the hell of physical and emotional pain without hope of relief. Because this practice offers us so many potent tools to step out of that hell. So let's look at the hell of everything that I've worked for is for naught. It will disappear. And my great-great-grandchildren won't even know my name, probably. Probably couldn't identify a picture of me. Won't have anything that I, that I made. How do we work with that particular form of suffering, emotional suffering, that particular aspect of hell? What could it be that co- could go on if we practice that won't be related to physical things that we produce which will decay? That's the foundation of our practice. What could go on that could eventually be unconditioned, that arises from the unconditioned, that which is eternal? So we say wisdom and compassion. So that's why we cultivate wisdom and compassion. That's why that's part of our vow, to cultivate wisdom and compassion, the two elements of awakening or enlightenment. Because those have a chance of going on. Because we are the agents of wisdom and compassion. They exist without us, but if we cultivate them, they will go on. Because of entropy, right? This is a very important point, and we were talking about it just the other day at lunch. How can you work for peace in a world where war is inevitable? Another truth that we have to face. War is inevitable. We would all like to believe, well, someday there'll be a world without war. And we sing the peace songs about someday a a world without war. But underneath, we don't really believe it. Because as long as human beings have existed, there's been fighting. Two human beings, they fight. They have different points of view. Two given human beings have different points of view, and they're going to end up arguing over them. No matter how much you love each other, right? We know that from having partners and being married and having children. It's inevitable. So you have two human beings, they fight. Then you have 100, they're going to fight. 200, 1,000, they're going to fight. If they're different color, different religious beliefs, have different territories carved out, different amounts of wealth or resources, they're going to fight. So war has existed since for, forever back, and is going to, we just have to be practical. It's always going to be with us. That doesn't mean we haven't made progress, but every, there are also examples in civilization of civilizations arising, great ages of enlightenment and wisdom, 
kind treatment of people that were poor and diseased and so on, like in, in King Ashoka's time, for example. And then, poof, barbarians come, invade, it's all gone, wiped out. So that's part of impermanence. So yes, we can hope to change things for the better, but we have to know that it will be destroyed. It just will be destroyed in one way or another, either because the galaxy explodes or because the particular civilization we belong to is overturned. But wisdom and compassion always exist. That's part of the unconditioned, part of the eternal. Every religious major religion says that, has touched that truth. So if we become channels for it, is that good? Will that go on? So how do we, back to the question of how do we, why would we work for peace in a, in a world where war is inevitable? Well, because the natural tendency is entropy, is disintegration into chaos, right? So things could be much worse if we weren't working for peace. Yeah? Things would be much worse if we weren't working for wisdom. Things could be much wor- would be much worse if we weren't trying to be more kind and loving people. So it's just like our natural human tendency is to be lazy and to be deluded, self-deluded, and to relax into delusion and laziness. So we have to work hard against those tendencies. We have to work hard against this force that draws us into conflict and into war. So that's why it's worthwhile to work for peace, because things could be much worse. And that's why it's worthwhile to have a spiritual practice and to practice together, because things could be much worse if we weren't doing that. And what we're doing, we are the only agents of loving kindness and wisdom. Of course it's when we go out in the woods, we realize it's there too. It's manifesting all the time. That's the part of the, re- the eternal manifestation of wisdom and compassion. But when we're not aligned with it, then things deteriorate very quickly in the human world, and then it, it deteriorates very, very quickly in the natural world, which is manifesting the eternal all the time. So what we do is constantly affecting everyone around us and the rest of the world. So we must practice. We must practice if we want to leave a legacy for the future that has some degree of wisdom and compassion, some degree of peace, of serenity, of refuge, a place of refuge. So what we can do right now is we can offer ourselves as that place. Great Vows and Monastery, we hope, will persist for generations as a place that people can come to whenever they need it to practice, to find a place of beauty, of serenity, of refuge, of inspiration. We all get overwhelmed by the world of suffering. We all get plunged into the hells of physical and mental suffering that we don't have the tools to work with. And we need help from the Jizo Bodhisattvas that are all all around. One time we'll be the person who needs help and another time we'll be the person who's helping. It works in that wonderful way. And the more we practice and learn about our own suffering and how to relieve it, then 
that makes us able to work with someone else who comes along who's plunged into a little deeper hell than we were. So please all work with the tools of practice because physical and mental suffering without hope of relief is a very sad condition and many people are in that condition. They do not know. They have not been given the tools to lift themselves out of suffering. But we know the tools. We're using the tools. We have something very concrete to offer people of immense benefit. Even things that we now don't, don't even remember because it's, we take them for granted, like the inner critic and working with the inner critic. Some of us working with, have been working with the inner critic for so many years. But then other new people come along and we realize, oh, this, this is what they need. They need to know this piece about the inner critic. So we, the longer we practice, the more tools we practice with, the more we can help a variety of people who are temporarily unable to help themselves and in to inspire them to pick up the tools and practice for themselves. So that each person is able to dip into their own well of wisdom and compassion. So yes, hell is physical or mental suffering without hope of relief. But practice offers hope of relief and methods of relief. So please continue practicing not only for your own sake, but for the sake of your mother and your father and the birds and the turtles and the trees and all suffering sentient beings. Thank you. We'll close the four great bodhisattva vows, which can be found on